Welcome to this special American Society of Breast Surgeons edition of Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In May of this year, our CME group hosted a special Patterns of Care Symposium on the first evening of the ASBS meeting in New York City. During this event, we presented for the first time results of a national Patterns of Care study conducted several months previously targeting U.S.-based general surgeons and surgical oncology clinical investigators. My co-chair for this effort was Dr. Pat Whitworth, and the other faculty members were Dr. Mike Dixon, Dr. Mark Pegram, and Dr. Peter Rabden. Later on in the program, you'll hear individual interviews with the faculty, but we begin with highlights of the ASBS Symposium and the first topic, which was neoadjuvant therapy, and specifically the highly controversial topic of timing of sentinel node biopsy. While more than three-quarters of surgical investigators would do the procedure after neoadjuvant treatment, in community surgeons, 40% would do it before, 40% after, and 20% would not do sentinel node at all in this situation. Dr. Dixon began the discussion. I was a little bit surprised that so many people wanted to do sentinel node before neoadjuvant therapy. I mean, nowadays with ultrasound and image-guided core biopsy and FNA, you can detect about 50% of patients with involved nodes at the time of diagnosis. More importantly, you can detect those, the majority of those patients with multiple nodes, which is probably what you want to know. For me, the fact that some of these patients are going to be downstaged after surgery, the fact that there was a very good study from Cremona where they took about 250 patients before chemotherapy, they did Sinti scans, before chemotherapy, this is auxiliary Sinti scans, and after chemotherapy, exactly the same nodes showed up before and after chemotherapy. So sentinel node works after chemotherapy. And for me, I want to know what's going on after chemotherapy. I want to know what the oncologists have done to convert that. Because if the sentinel nodes are negative after chemotherapy, I don't think these women need auxiliary dissection. If you look at the NSABP data, what you find is the majority of patients who had false negative central nodes were those in which they found only a single node. The reality is that most patients have two or three central nodes. If you're good at finding the central nodes and you find an average somewhere between two and three central nodes, then your false negative rate will be better than the NSABP study. So for me, I think I would do central node after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and I'm not too bothered about doing it before. Pat, can you kind of just summarize your take on this pretty complicated issue? Yeah, I would agree with Mike. The original concern was, in the first place, is it accurate? And a number of studies that came out early in the decade said, well, it's all over the map. We don't know if we can trust it. But now the NSABP, which did the B32 study, which was a non-neoadjuvant study, and these neoadjuvant studies, if you look at patients who got isotope, the accuracy is exactly the same. It's even a little bit better in the neoadjuvant studies, not statistically different. So the accuracy is not in question. The other issue that comes up is, do we lose information that guides therapy? As we've learned recently that response is probably the most powerful predictor of outcome and guide for further treatment that we've got. And we are certainly going to lose that information if we take the nodes out on the front end. But on the other hand, the radiation oncologist in many places wants to know how many nodes were positive. If there were four or more, we need chest wall radiation therapy for a mastectomy patient, or we need supraclavicular radiation therapy for a breast conservation patient. You're suppressing information that we really need to make a decision. Terry, when he's recently presented this, and I don't believe he's published this yet, can show you that the local regional failure rate for a patient who has even a single positive node 
after neoadjuvant therapy is high, higher than 10%, in a range where we would want to give that patient chest wall radiation therapy or a supraclavicular port. On the other hand, if a patient has zero positive nodes after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, their risk is significantly under 10% and probably in a group we would not radiate. Now, that, again, is preliminary information. It hasn't been published, but I'm using it as a guide in my practice. What about Mike's point about the issue of number sentinel nodes, Pat? And what about this false you know, negative rate? Is it comparable to what you would see you know, in the more typical situation when the surgery is done before chemo? I think so. Kelly McMasters, in his tremendous work that he published from the era where we were doing sentinel node and an axillary dissection at the same time when people were trying to build their skill set, shows pretty clearly if you just take out an average of one sentinel node, your false negative rate is going to be way higher. Now, it's not that some cases don't have just a single node, but your average should be two or two to three. And if you have that average, your false negative rate is much lower than a peer who has a single node for most cases. Another issue in neoadjuvant therapy is the choice of chemotherapy versus endocrine treatment in patients with ER-positive HER2-negative tumors who desire breast conservation but where the breast tumor size ratio is not adequate. Our survey indicated that in a 40-year-old patient, 82% of investigators versus 52% of general surgeons would use pre-op therapy, mainly chemo. In the same situation, a 70-year-old woman, 75% of the investigators, but only 20% of general surgeons would use neoadjuvant therapy, mainly endocrine treatment, as commented on by Dr. Pegram. Clearly, in my experience at UCLA, our surgeons were very in tune to cosmesis, and consequently, we had a lot of referrals for lesions just like this one to consider neoadjuvant chemotherapy for downstaging. The key issue, you have to hit the nail on the head, Neil, of course, is whether or not the patient is a candidate for chemo as opposed to neoadjuvant endocrine therapy alone. And with regard to the age breakdown, however, I'm not surprised, certainly in the elderly Clinicians are less inclined to consider induction chemotherapy, but there will be really no downside to using neoadjuvant endocrine therapy in this age range. There's ample data from the Europeans and also from Matt Ellis' group in St. Louis showing that there are meaningful clinical responses with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, and it's a viable therapeutic option for such patients. Peter, what are your thoughts about this issue of neoadjuvant therapy in general, particularly the issue of hormonal therapy and how it seems different on each side of the Atlantic? Well, I think that it's very important in considering this to think about what the estrogen receptor status of the patient is because neoadjuvant therapy in general has been less successful in ER-positive patients. And chemotherapy, it doesn't surprise me that there's a fair amount of bias toward chemotherapy, particularly in the younger patients, because chemotherapy has in general, a faster response. The response rates are higher, although I think that that's in part because you're looking at an average where you're including a lot of ER-negative patients. So that if you have an ER-positive patient, unfortunately, neoadjuvant therapy's response rates are lower, in particular for chemotherapy, and not too different for endocrine therapy. So I think for an ER-positive patient, you could use either. Mike, you had a paper recently I thought was really interesting about how long you use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. These were patients on the aromatase inhibitor letrozole, and sort of rather than taking them right to surgery, you were carrying them out for a fairly long time before they went to surgery. How do you approach these patients? Yeah, I mean, we learned something from the chemotherapy studies. The longer you treat them, the better the response you get. So we've been treating patients for longer durations with endocrine therapy. Instead of three to four months, 
six months, nine months, and a year. And if you do that, you can convert about 70% of the patients who at presentation require a mastectomy. And these are this type of patient, strongly ER positive, usually PR positive. You convert 70% of them eventually, either from locally advanced breast cancer or requiring a mastectomy to breast conserving surgery. So undoubtedly, prolonged durations, as we've heard, endocrine therapy tends to work a bit slower. The other thing that happens in endocrine therapy, as many of you know, it's the pathology of the response. What you get is a central scar with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. The cancer implodes, so the size of the cancer you've got at the end is the size of the bit of tissue that you need to remove. The next aspect of the survey discussed by the faculty was selection of patients with ER-positive tumors for the use of chemotherapy, and specifically the role of the Oncotype DX assay in this process. 90% of the faculty and 70% of the practicing surgeons would likely use this assay in a 60-year-old woman with a 1.3 centimeter ER-positive HER2-negative node-negative tumor, and Dr. Pegram began the discussion. This is clearly one of the most challenging issues in all of medical oncology is how to manage the node-negative patient with regard to the use of systemic adjuvant chemotherapy. And until the advent of technologies such as the multiplex PCR Oncotype DX assay, all we had were clinical guidelines to make these kinds of decisions. And of course, Peter had very important online algorithms to also estimate relative recurrence risk, which are extremely valuable in the modern era. But until those tools were available, Oncotype DX and Adjuvant Online, it was really difficult to segregate patients who truly would derive a benefit from those who don't need chemotherapy at all. And consequently, there was a lot of overtreatment. In my estimation, there's no doubt about that fact. And the biggest benefit of Oncotype DX since its inception is the more judicious use of systemic adjuvant chemotherapy for small ER-positive node-negative tumors. We actually did a survey 12 years ago of American medical oncologists asking them what the prognosis was of stage one patients, various patient scenarios. And what we found was that there was a very wide divergence or spectrum of answers. And I think that tools like adjuvant, amongst other things, have narrowed and gotten rid of really the wildly inaccurate answers. I think it is important to think about these things in numerical terms, because without thinking about things in numerical terms, but just thinking qualitatively about it, you can't really make any estimates of the balance of the benefits versus the risks of therapy. So looking at it, it's actually impressive that the average surgeon is actually making a fairly good estimate of what patient's prognosis is and actually has a realistic view of what the benefits are that are being delivered by adjuvant therapy. It's been gratifying to see the Oncotype assays studies be presented because they've really been consistent and provided a very strong picture of how good this assay is. Basically, what they've shown is repeatedly that it's a very strong prognostic factor and that low versus high in the Oncotype 21 gene assay really distinguishes patients with several fold difference in prognosis. So if you were just using that alone, it would be a very powerful prognostic factor. But the other thing that's emerged is a very consistent picture that the patients who have low Oncotype scores also are not benefiting from adjuvant chemotherapy. So the test seems to be 
both a test that's prognostic, and I should emphasize that that's been developed and really validated in node-negative patients who are ER-positive who are also going to be receiving hormonal therapy. But it also appears to be a test that's of great value in identifying patients who don't seem to benefit much in terms of the proportional bite that chemotherapy takes out of the recurrence risk. And so when you put those two together, you can see why things like the NCCN guidelines are suggesting that if you're node negative and if you have a low oncotype score, you're not a candidate for chemotherapy. Pat, what about the issue of who orders it or who should make the decision? I really believe very strongly the surgeon should be ordering this test. Now, if the surgeon forgets to order it or slow somehow, maybe the medical oncologist should order it when the patient shows up. But let me tell you what happens. The patient shows up at the medical oncologist, and she has been suffering not only because she's worried about her cancer, but because she doesn't know what's going to happen to her. And she is really, really wanting to know what is going to happen to me. And that medical oncologist looks at her, and he's conflicted or she's conflicted. Because on the one hand, if you look at patterns of use of Oncotype, it changes what gets done about 30% of the time, but maybe 70% it doesn't. And the medical oncologist is looking that woman in the eye, and she or he can see that woman is going to go through the roof if she says, let's wait a couple more weeks, and then we'll decide. So she says, you know, I kind of get this right 70% of the time. Anyway, I think we'll just go ahead. This is a sort of a low-risk situation. And they really will be right most of the time, but some of the time they're going to miss a chance to give chemotherapy that would be life-saving to someone that might not otherwise get it, and vice versa. So just like surgeons order ER and PR, and the medical oncologist says, what the heck, why didn't you order the ER before you sent me this patient? I think ultimately that's how this is going to be applied. At the present, you want to make sure the ER is positive before you order it, but I really hope surgeons will begin to adopt that so that the patients don't suffer that way. I was thinking about a woman I interviewed recently for one of our programs who actually went out and bought a wig when she was diagnosed with breast cancer because she read about it and assumed she was going to get chemo and she had an archetype and never got the chemo. Mark? There's just maybe a few exceptions, I suppose, to the rule of ordering them reflexly on all of these cases. You know, for example, if you have a well-differentiated tubular or mucinous carcinoma, it's very unlikely that's going to come back in a high-risk strata. Moreover, if you have HER2 amplified disease, in the retrospective analysis of B14 that Paik looked at, 100% of the fish amplified cases were either intermediate or high recurrence scores. So it's very unlikely and wishful thinking to think you're going to get a low risk score if you're HER2 amplified. Now, having said that, I agree with Pat that the assay has tremendous potential for limiting injudicious use of chemotherapy. And there was a very nice paper presented at San Antonio from, I believe, University of Pennsylvania at the last San Antonio meeting where they just looked at their chemotherapy utilization at that institution in the pre-oncotype era versus 2005-2006. And there was a dramatic reduction in order writing for adjuvant chemotherapy for these patients. So I think it's a very, very useful tool indeed. Now, we want to briefly talk about a really fascinating report that just occurred in San Antonio in December, the first time looking at oncotype and node-positive tumors. Just real briefly, maybe, Peter, you can start out kind of going through this. This was going back looking at a study that had been done in patients with node-positive disease, ER-positive, postmenopausal. Can you talk about the study and sort of the bottom line of what was presented in terms of the data? Okay. This study actually followed an NSABP study. The NSABP study was NSABP B20, and in B20, patients basically were randomized between getting tamoxifen alone or tamoxifen and CMF. 
What that study showed was that if you had a low recurrence score, the Kaplan-Meier curve distinguished by whether or not you got chemotherapy overlay each other, and that the benefit was in the intermediate and high-risk recurrence score groups. So that it seemed to identify a group that was not responsive to chemotherapy, which, by the way, is something that many of us had kind of suspected for a while, and that is that very well-differentiated, high-ER-positive, low-proliferation tumors just don't seem to respond. But we didn't have an unambiguous way of identifying those people quite so clearly. But one of the questions about B20 was, well, how generalizable is this? And this is for CMF, but nobody much is using that much CMF anymore, so what about a modern regimen with anthracycline? So that was what the importance was of SWOG8814. It was very similar in design to B20 in that it was a randomization between tamoxifen alone or chemotherapy plus tamoxifen, but it was different in that it was in a node-positive population and that the chemotherapy was CAF. And basically, it showed nearly the identical result. The numbers were different in terms of what the recurrence scores actual observed were, but in terms of the benefit, the hazard ratios, for the low recurrence score patients, essentially it was very close to one. Which would be no benefit. There was no benefit. But the hazard ratios were to the side favoring chemotherapy if you had a mid-range or high recurrence score. So that's completely consistent with what was seen in B14. That, together with other data, suggests that this assay is an assay that does select patients who are chemoresponsive. Now, having said that, I should say that this is generalization from a study using CMF and a study using CAF. And we haven't really shown whether or not this is true for taxanes and various other scenarios, but I think there's a reasonable kind of underlying structure of things that that's probably true, that this assay, by selecting patients who have very low proliferative rates and other features, can be identified as the low recurrence score group, and that those patients actually don't respond much to chemotherapy. Pat, what's your take about these data? Yeah, a couple of things come up. One, the NCCN guidelines do include patients who have a 0.2 to 2 millimeter size metastasis, and that does make some sense. But in addition to that, you end up, I think, in this situation, using it in circumstances where you're on the fence. And so if the patient is, we'll say, 65 or 70 and has some comorbidities, and you get an oncotype score back, she's got one positive node, maybe it's a 7 millimeter met, you get back a score that says 7 or 6, I think you're probably hurting her and not helping her by giving her chemotherapy. So if it's something where you're really on the fence about treating that patient, I think people are probably already using it. On the other hand, if you've got a 45-year-old woman with three positive nodes, I don't think anybody's ready to make that jump. Although, ultimately, I suspect we might. I don't think we have that evidence. I think it always has been clear that there's no point in using Oncotype if the patient has already decided one way or the other that you're going to have chemo, you're not going to have chemo. It's for people who aren't really sure. I'm curious about Mike's perspective on this, particularly this is not something that's used a lot on the other side of the Atlantic. Peter referred to the NCCN practice guidelines that have come out not too long ago supporting the use of Oncotype. And the other issue is in terms of the MAMA print that we want to talk a little bit about. ASCO also came out with recommendations, their tumor marker committee, in terms of the use of Oncotype. Just before I flew down here, I pulled off the Journal of Clinical Oncology, the EPUB of several letters to the editor, 
a couple letters from people who had been involved with Mammoprint questioning, you know, the NCCN guidelines and the ASCO guidelines not including Mammoprint. Mike, what's your take on this? It's quite good for me because I can look from afar and be perhaps a little bit more objective than even the people involved. It strikes me that the Oncotype has a number of advantages over the Mammoprint. I mean, the biggest and most obvious advantage is that the Mammoprint needs fresh tissue and you need, as a surgeon, you need to actually cut into the specimen and take a core out of it. Certainly had discussions with the Mammoprint group. I think that's not practical for most surgeons. The pathologists go crazy when you start cutting into the breast tissue. So unless we can get that on a core biopsy or something like that, then I think the Mammoprint, sadly, is going to have limited value. Oncotype, much better because you can do it after the event. And the results that are coming out from Oncotype are pretty impressive. And I think we, like you guys, the guidelines are very important. I think this will get eventually some kind of rubber stamp in the UK, and I think it become widely used. It seems to me as a definite move forward, particularly to try and avoid over-treatment, because I think the biggest problem we have today is actually over-treatment, not under-treatment. And final comment from Peter about this issue, and particularly about Mammoprint. Mammoprint, of course, was developed in a population of patients who were both ER positive and ER negative. And the results were presented as a prognostic assay in the group overall. But I don't think it's been truly validated in the ER negative patients. If you actually look at the detail of the publications, you'll find that almost none of the patients, less than 5%, who were ER negative actually had high mammoprint scores. There are so few patients overall that we don't really know the prognosis of those patients. So I don't think a claim that mammoprint should be applied to ER-negative patients and that that's its special niche is really well defended at this point by the data. It's operated at an enormous disadvantage relative to the Oncotype assay because the Oncotype assay was developed quickly with long-term follow-up on very large numbers of patients because it can be done on archival material, fixed material. And the Mammoprint assay, of course, has had only much smaller tumor banks available for its development and validation. And these have not been banks that have been based on randomized clinical trials. So its development and validation is nowhere near as strong as that for the Oncotype assay. Okay, let's go on to the issue of adjuvant endocrine therapy and ER assays. And first to begin, Mark, we asked people, how confident are you in the reliability of ER assays? What are your thoughts about ER, and particularly when you see a patient with an ER-negative tumor? Do you think maybe about sending it to another lab, looking who did the test, et cetera? Certainly, all those things cross your mind. You look at the clinical context to see if the other prognostic factors fit into what you ordinarily expect to see in an ER-positive case. And so all these are issues. Clearly, there is discrepancy and discordance between various community hospital pathology labs with regard to measurement of ER. You know, that's been demonstrated, I think, on both sides of the Atlantic, that there's always going to be some cases of discordance. For this reason, ASCO and CAP are embarking on a set of guidelines for ascertainment of ER and PR, just like they've done for HER2 testing, which I think we're going to get into in just a minute. And so I think that in the long term, we will see more guidelines for pathologists for more standardized measurement of these variables. And also of note that now the Oncotype is reporting quantitative ER levels, and we'll see as things move forward in the future is RT-PCR that's using the Oncotype. Is that the way the future of assays like ER? 
Now let's talk a little bit about hormone therapy. And I have to say this result bothered me a little bit. The question is, how long is a patient ER-positive HER2-negative tumor at substantial risk for cancer recurrence? And Peter, what bothered me here is I think the answer is 10 to 15 years at least. And 41% of the surgeons say only five years or less. Actually, a couple even say three years. What have we learned about the time course of recurrence with ER-positive disease? And what would you say to a patient who says, how long am I at risk for recurrence? For years, the American Cancer Society had an advertisement with people celebrating victory over cancer because they'd lived five years. And sadly, in the situation with ER-positive breast cancer, the celebration is always nice to have a celebration, but actually the recurrence rate really doesn't drop until after 10 years. And there's substantial risk after five years. The other thing is that adjuvant chemotherapy has its big impact on early events, but it does not affect the late events. And the late events are probably slower, more slowly proliferating tumors, and they just fly under the radar of the adjuvant chemotherapy. So there are substantial risks of recurrence afterwards. And then there are trials. Actually, NSCBP 33 was a trial randomizing patients after five years of tamoxifen to exomustane versus nothing. It was, of course, stopped, but was a positive trial because of the JMA-17 trial, which is letrozole after tamoxifen versus nothing after tamoxifen. And that trial actually showed substantial benefits because there was still substantial risk of recurrence in those patients after five years of tamoxifen. So one of the major questions today is how to optimize therapy for late recurrence, because there's substantial late recurrence in these patients. And we're going to talk for a few minutes about that as well as initial therapy, but agree or disagree, Peter. You're talking to a woman who's just finished five years of tamoxifen, and she says, what's the chance that I'm going to have a recurrence over the next five years, years five to ten? And the patient's node positive, agree or disagree, I would say your risk of recurrence is about 4% a year or 20% over the next five years. Agree or disagree, Peter? I would agree with that, that that's on the whole for node positive patients between years five and 10, they have about a 20% chance of recurrence. And same node negative, would you say 2% a year for five years or 10%? That's approximately right, yes. Pat, how do those numbers strike you? Well, I think we all know now that those patients benefit, especially at that substantial risk, from at least two years and probably five of some aromatase inhibitor. Let's talk about a really interesting paper that was presented at San Antonio that got into the issue of the duration of tamoxifen. You know, there's been a big debate about that over the years. Initially, people, tamoxifen came out, thought the patients would take it forever, And then there were some data that came up, particularly from the NSABP, suggesting maybe even more recurrences if you went beyond five years. Mike, can you kind of summarize what Pito presented at San Antonio? And I interviewed him in San Antonio, and what he said for our program was, I think if you keep tamoxifen going beyond five years, it lowers the recurrence rate another 15%. Mike, what do you think about that presentation and what Pito had to say? Yeah, I wasn't too surprised, to be honest, that prolonged tamoxifen did decrease recurrences. We used to treat people for tamoxifen for 20 years. We always thought it was probably doing something worthwhile, but the 15% is just not nearly the amount of percentage decrease you get from switching them to letrozole or nastrozole or exomestine. So my perspective is, you know, so what? 
Yeah, it's a very interesting study. But, you know, the world's moved on. And I think sometimes Peter does kind of live in the past. And the reality is, for me, it's a so what study because, you know, we've now moved on. We've got much better drugs after five years of time. Well, you know, what I heard people saying in terms of so what was premenopausal women. Yeah, the only group where I think it is beneficial is these premenopausal women who have not yet become postmenopausal. And the advantage for that group is you can continue for five years, six years, seven years until they become postmenopausal and then you can switch them. So you're right, there is a small group of women in that perimenopausal period where at least you feel comfortable now continuing on tamoxifen for more than five years. So, Mark, Peto didn't present toxicity data. They don't have it. Endometrial cancer, et cetera, et cetera. They just have recurrence and death. You see a patient who was 38 when she was diagnosed, premenopausal. You put her on tamoxifen. It's five years later. She's still having regular menstrual periods. She had three positive nodes originally. She's not having a problem with tamoxifen. Would you have continued tamoxifen before you saw that, and would you do it now? I would have stopped it before I saw the data. Now I would have a balanced discussion with the patient. It's still not been published. It hasn't been subject to peer review. We haven't seen the safety data, so I would not push for it even now. The next topic addressed was adjuvant endocrine therapy, and our Patterns of Care survey demonstrated that about half of the surgical investigators and a third of surgeons in practice initiate adjuvant endocrine therapy themselves in specific clinical situations. Dr. Ravden began by commenting on the major shift that's occurred in recent years in endocrine treatment of postmenopausal patients, where tamoxifen has been substantially replaced by the aromatase inhibitors, which are being given for increasing periods of time. A preamble to this would be to say what a wonderful drug tamoxifen is, because tamoxifen cuts the risk of recurrence by about 40% and the risk of breast cancer-related mortality by about 30%. And that's quite clear. Now, aromatase inhibitors are therefore, in trials like the ATAC trial, where they're compared to tamoxifen, a step beyond tamoxifen. However, they're a modest step beyond tamoxifen. The additional recurrence benefit is about 20% benefit. And the additional benefit in terms of survival is somewhere around perhaps 5 to 10%. That's such a small number that it is not statistically significant in the ATAC trial. There are some trials in which there was switching after three years of tamoxifen. And in those trials, the aromatase inhibitors, there is a meta-analysis of those trials that suggests that there's a survival advantage there. So I think that in postmenopausal patients, aromatase inhibitors are a modest step forward in hormonal therapy, that they're better than tamoxifen unambiguously for disease-free survival, probably for survival as well, although the additional survival benefit is small enough that it does not reach statistical significance. And certainly we've seen in our patterns of care studies of medical oncologists a major, you know, pretty much complete shift over I thought one of the most interesting slides at San Antonio was where they looked at the issue of carryover effect after hormonal therapy stopped. Mike, can you talk about what was seen with an aromatase inhibitor and how that compares to what had been seen in the past with tamoxifen? Well, we saw with tamoxifen that it almost got better over time, and that's exactly what we've seen with aromatase inhibitors. The thing I'd just point out about the problem about these adjuvant trials is I really do think we've got the wrong endpoints in these trials. Overall survival in this elderly population where over 50% of the people are going to die of other causes is not really a good endpoint to compare drugs. For me, something like metastatic free survival would be a much better endpoint. So what we're seeing is 
if these curves diverge, and perhaps they may continue to diverge, we may see eventually some small improvement in survival. As a surgeon, though, a lot of these events that these aromatase inhibitors prevent, and even in the MA17, are local events and second cancers, which for me is quite important, because I don't want to be my patients who've had breast conserving surgery to be coming back with a second cancer in the treated breast or another cancer in the opposite breast. So although we cast them off, these extra events, as they're not important in relation to mortality, they are really important in relation to patients' quality of life and also in relation to surgeons' quality of life. Mark? Neil, I think we have a tremendous opportunity here with these very large adjuvant trials comparing AIs to tamoxifen because we have the opportunity to take a look at the CYP2D6 polymorphisms in the tamoxifen-treated arm. We may be looking at a composite of effects with regard to the efficacy of tamoxifen in these trials, and there may well be a group of patients, the slow metabolizers of tamoxifen, who greatly benefit from AIs, and conversely, there may be a group that greatly benefit from tamoxifen, maybe even superior to the AIs, and this is a fantastic opportunity, you know, if we have access to these samples to look at the CYP2D6 genotypes. Mike, what about the issue of selection of an aromatase inhibitor? Most of the oxen practice usually choose between letrozole and anastrozole, the two drugs that have been studied. You just published some data in the JCO comparing the two. Is there a clinical difference? Well, although we found that letrozole biochemically was a better aromatase inhibitor, I think the evidence is that both drugs are very effective. We're about to publish another paper in breast cancer research and treatment, and we weren't able, in relation to biological changes in the tumor, reduction in proliferation, changes in estrogen receptor and progesterone receptors, to show any difference between the two drugs. So you'd have to say the low biochemistry letrozole is better. Currently, there is no compelling evidence that one is better than the other. There is a trial ongoing. The FACE trial is currently closed and comparing letrozole and anastrozole, and that will eventually tell us. So I think, you know, at the moment, there is no evidence that one clinically is better than the other. Now, what about the issue of using AIs more than five years? Obviously, there are a bunch of trials out there looking at this question, and really, this should be the first option for any patient is to go into a trial like the NSABP study. There's also an extension of the MA17 study looking at the same thing. But what about patients who are not eligible or don't want to participate? And what we've seen is in a non-protocol setting, really in the last couple years, a big change in oncologists towards continuing the AI, particularly in people who are node positive, not because necessarily we have data, but because people get nervous about the numbers in Peter's model there. What are your thoughts about this, Mike, in terms of the issue of putting reimbursement issues aside or cost issues aside, just the science of it? Do you think it's reasonable to present continuation of an AI outside of a protocol setting today? It's an area where we need more data. I think what we found from the MA17 study is that five years of endocrine therapy is not enough, and these people are at continued risk. So I can understand why people are doing it. So it's kind of one of these things, you know, do I believe that the science is sufficient to say that we should do it at the present time? No. Are there patients, however, in whom... On an individual basis, you would probably use it, yes. So I think it's one of these situations where we don't have the data, but we have the belief that longer treatments are going to be more effective. Mark, how do you approach these patients outside a protocol setting? Well, I was just thinking, you know, this is probably the biggest contribution of Pito's presentation. It's just proof of concept that longer duration anti-estrogen therapy is useful, and we've certainly seen it in all of the switching studies. 
So, I mean, again, it's a situation in the absence of data. You have to see how the patient was doing during the first five years, see how well they're tolerating the drug, and then have a balanced discussion, hopefully convince them to go on to a trial. If they have a lot of nodes, I've certainly had the circumstance of giving treatment beyond five years in my own practice, albeit without randomized data yet, but certainly patients with significant risk, it's a consideration even now. Peter, what about the issue of bone with aromatase inhibitors? The initial trials did show an increase in fracture level. Of course, they didn't use bone mineral density monitoring or bisphosphonates in those trials. Where are we right now in terms of understanding what happens to women nowadays when we follow them fairly carefully? I think the safety with which we can give these drugs has been enormously improved from the situation of the initial trials. And that when you take a look, there are clear guidelines about monitoring of what the bone mineral density is, starting the therapy, and then annual monitoring, perhaps less than annual monitoring, in people that have little loss and start with excellent bone mineral densities. But certainly the major issue of these agents is the possibility of getting patients into trouble with bone mineral density. But with monitoring and also with treatment, with bisphosphonates, and a number of trials now have come in that shown that both oral and IV forms of bisphosphonates can stop significant bone mineral density. I should say that the guidelines do not, however, recommend that all patients receive bisphosphonates, that patients who start out with excellent bone mineral density and do not have uh, striking loss during treatment do not need to get bisphosphonates, and bisphosphonates do carry their own risks so that they shouldn't be just given to people willy-nilly. I make one other point about this, and that is that it's very important that these patients not receive raloxifene because raloxifene, of course... With an AI. With an AI, right. That this is not a good drug to be a protective drug because, of course, it is a partial estrogen, and at least in animal models can essentially neutralize the effect of an aromatase inhibitor. What we're talking about here is protecting bone mineral density with bisphosphonates, not with just any anti-osteoporotic drug. And it's interesting, in San Antonio, they presented the fracture data, and by the time people came off the five years, the fracture rate had gone back to be the same as with tamoxifen. Just one final question for Mike. What's your take in terms of sort of globally quality of life women on AIs, women on tamoxifen. Let's put aside the endometrial cancer and the bone and all that, just how people feel, hot flashes. You have the aches and pains of the aromatase inhibitors. Any sort of global you know, impression or maybe data from studies in terms of how people feel? Well, now we're talking about them taking five or 10 years of therapy. I mean, the big issue of AIs is the arthralgia, the aches and pains. And what we found is that if you switch AIs about 50% of patients who have bad bone and joint symptoms on one AI won't have it on the other. And about 80% of people who can't tolerate AIs because of these symptoms will be able to tolerate tamoxifen. So I think it's a matter of, as far as quality of life is concerned, these are the biggest issues. Hot flashes are often a problem on tamoxifen. Vaginal dryness on AIs, you know, can you give them vaginal estrogen? Some people say it's a bit absorbed. And there's still a lot of work to do, I think, on quality of life. One of the things to realize just about when tamoxifen is, however, you know, five years tamoxifen's, as soon as you stop tamoxifen, it's like HRT on your bones. You lose that bone protective effect. So within five years of stopping tamoxifen, you're going to be losing a lot of bone very quickly. Tamoxifen doesn't protect your bones long term. 
The next topic addressed by the faculty was sentinel node biopsy, which is utilized by virtually all the respondents to the survey, who estimated that about 10 to 15 percent of the time, nodes that are called negative on frozen section are called positive on permanent section. Perhaps the most interesting survey question related to sentinel node was the location of the injection, with subareolar being the most common in investigators, while intradermal areolar was more common in community-based surgeons, as commented on by Dr. Whitworth. Well, I think over time, most people have switched from injecting whatever tracer material they're using in the parenchyma right around the area of the tumor to a dermal injection for isotope and perhaps a subareolar injection for the dye. And this just really parallels the growing confidence that the breast drains to a given sentinel node. And in the beginning, of course, we thought the upper or outer quadrant might drain to one sentinel node and the lower inner quadrant might drain to another. And it really seems that that is not the case. I certainly want to emphasize to people that if you're having any trouble, make sure you're injecting the isotope intradermally and you will get better blue dye staining of the sentinel nodes if you inject in a subareolar location. And I think this is sort of, we've caught a trend as it's moving forward. Mike, what was your overall take about, you know, sort of how people are utilizing it and areas where you do things differently than what you saw in the survey? There is still a great variation in what people are doing for sentinel node. It always surprised me a lot that we've seen people present here, you know, you can inject the radioactivity in the OR. You don't need to be injecting it hours before. It shoots up to the nodes very quickly. It doesn't also seem to matter where you inject it. They go to the same sentinel nodes. So to me, it probably doesn't matter, you know, where you inject it. But injecting around the tumor, all that blue stuff around the tumor makes it very difficult for the surgeon. So those surgeons are injecting it around the tumor Perhaps think again, because it's a messy procedure when you're trying to take it out. So that's why I have changed. I used to inject it around the tumor. I inject it somewhere else. I don't think it matters where you inject it. I think the results are good, whatever you do. Pat, I was talking about this project with a medical oncologist this afternoon, and I said, well, anything else that you think you'd like to find out? Pat, this oncologist said, you know, you should ask him in another survey, ask him about the issue of the microscopically positive sentinel node. What do you think about that? What do you think we would see? I think surgeons in practice, and people vary a little bit in how dogmatic they are, but they know that the answer if you're taking the board examination is you take the patient back for an axillary dissection if it's greater than a 0.2 millimeter metastasis. On the other hand, again, we talked earlier about things that where you're on the fence, you have a situation where you don't think it's going to change treatment, you have a patient with comorbidities. And Chip Cody and his group, I think last year, presented the memorial experience with this. And indeed, there are a number of patients where the surgeon decides in an individual way, I'm not taking this patient back. And what they see is a little bit of an increase in risk for recurrence, but it's certainly not a large increase. So I think, like with everything, we are individualizing, even though in general, we would say you want to go back. We were talking about RT-PCR in terms of the oncotype. What about the issue of RT-PCR in terms of interoperative analysis? We asked whether people had heard of it. Actually, most surgeons in practice have not. Where are we right now with that, Pat? Well, I'm kind of excited about this because we participated in this study. I presented it to the American Society of Breast Surgeons last year. It won an award and got published in the fall. So that was all very gratifying. And I think the ASBS membership probably knows as much about it as anyone. 
It's still a matter of getting pathologists to go along with it. Right now, there is zero financial incentive to make any big change, and it's a pretty big change. So I think that will, until we can get some way to make it make sense to them from a business standpoint, it's going to be slow, but it's certainly more accurate. I saw Peter Blumenkrantz here earlier today, and he and I have talked about this a lot. He put more patients on that study than anyone else, and I think he can tell you it's made a tremendous difference in his practice. The next topic was adjuvant systemic therapy of patients with HER2-positive tumors and HER2 testing. Perhaps the most significant moment in the recent history of systemic biologic treatment of cancer was the May 2005 ASCO meeting, in which the results of three large, well-conducted, randomized clinical trials of the use of trastuzumab were presented for the first time. The NSABP, NCCTG, and so-called HERA study all had both similarities and differences in trial design and results. One critical similarity was a stunning 50% reduction in relapse rate with trastuzumab and an equally impressive survival benefit, which was above and beyond what is obtained from chemotherapy and endocrine therapy in patients with ER-positive tumors. Currently, our Patterns of Care surveys demonstrate that trastuzumab with chemotherapy is standard of care in patients with node-positive tumors and patients with node-negative lesions over a sonometer and on an individual case-by-case basis when the tumor is under a sonometer. Because of this enormous potential benefit, it's critical to make sure patients have accurate HER2 testing. A landmark effort to review this important issue was just simultaneously published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and by the American College of Pathologists. Dr. Pegren was one of the authors on this historic paper, which contains detailed algorithms related to HER2 testing, and in our survey, we asked about a patient with a 1-plus IHC result on HER2, and about half of the investigators would consider fish testing for such a patient, while 85% of general surgeons would consider fish testing. Dr. Pegram began by commenting on the practical issue of quality control in HER2 testing. That's the critical question for you to take to your tumor boards. Ask your pathologist, what methodology are they using? Remember that the seminal work that was done by the cooperative groups, NSABP and the NCCTG, early on in the adjuvant trastuzumab clinical trial screening days is that there was tremendous discordance in the community with regard to testing compared to central reference labs, either at Soon Peg's lab with NSABP or the Mayo Clinic labs for the NCCTG. So until the cooperative group centralized their HER2 testing in reference laboratories, the results were literally all over the place. And to this day, various community pathology laboratories may still be using homebrew antibodies and not Hercept test and not using validated assays. And so the whole crux of these guidelines are to establish a mechanism for standard operating procedures. These procedures include pre-analytical phases. For example, the duration of fixation is an important variable. You all need to know about that so that you don't leave samples sitting in formaldehyde all weekend, for example. That makes a Mark, difference. Soon Paik told me recently that there's a difference whether or not the biopsy is done on Friday or Monday and Tuesday. Is that that's kind of pretty Sure, scary. I mean, uh, formaldehyde is a denaturing agent. You lose intensity of the HER2 protein signal the longer you fix samples. So is what happens a patient who might have a HER2-positive tumor, it's read as HER2-negative? Absolutely. And the other problem with Hercept test is because of 
the way the assay was set up in terms of sensitivity, and since there was loss of HER2 protein in a lot of these samples, especially archival samples, one of the problems of the HERCEP test is actually false positives because they use an antigen retrieval step to try to rehabilitate this denatured HER2 protein, and that creates another problem, which is false positives, which is why in our group in Los Angeles, we really strongly advocated early on using fish screening up front. Now, fish has its own issues, it turns out. In routine clinical practice, out of the hands of real fish experts, it is also associated with a learning curve. It's very difficult to read. It's done in a dark field, so it can be very difficult to know if you're looking at an area of DCIS versus invasive tumors. The averages also can be misleading. Bottom line, Mark, you go back to our patient, 1 plus IHC. The guidelines would say, you're done, she's... HER2 negative. The investigators pretty well line up with that. The surgeons say maybe she should be fished. What would you do? Depends on the clinical context. You know, if this was a well-differentiated tubular cancer that's strongly ER positive, I would say, you know what, in that clinical context, I feel pretty comfortable with that result. Moreover, if it was a lobular breast cancer, lobular breast cancers are rarely HER2 amplified, and I would say that that might arguably be consistent. But in any other scenario, given the dramatic treatment effects of trastuzumab, I would be loath to miss a potential HER2-amplified case, and I would probably err on the side of retesting with fish in situations like this. So you were like another opinion on the committee? Because that wasn't really reflected in the thing that came out. Well, remember that these position papers are meant to be just the lowest common denominator. These are just guidelines. It doesn't mean that we can't do above and beyond what the recommendations are. So certainly all of us didn't agree with all of the various nuances of these guidelines. But that's not necessary. At least this establishes some minimum standard. And if routine community laboratories conform to these standards, at least we can compare apples to apples when we're looking at HER2 status. Peter, what about this issue of anthracycline versus non-anthracycline? Well, I think the unexpected downside of trastuzumab was that it caused congestive heart failure in about 4% of the patients. A couple things to say about this is that the trials very carefully pre-screened the patients and then sequentially screened every three months the patients during treatment. So there's a risk that these numbers might be actually higher in the general population if those screenings are not done. The good news is that this does not seem to be the same kind of permanent injury to the heart that is associated with anthracyclines, for example, and that most of this is reversible. And it is certainly not progressive. In other words, most of this occurs within the first year, and the trials consistently show that there are not people that have sustained an injury that are going to slip into congestive failure later. So that to use with this kind of monitoring trastuzumab with an anthracycline is the indication and delivers much more benefit than risk in this scenario. What would really be nice, however, is to be able to use non-anthracycline-containing regimens because it's clear that the combination of the anthracycline and the trastuzumab is the villain. And there is one trial a large trial in which a combination of taxotere and carboplatinin was used, which looked very favorable together with the trastuzumab. And I think a number of people are using that regimen. That trial is the BCIRG006 trial. And the regimen Peter's talking about is docetaxel, carbo, and trastuzumab, the so-called TCH regimen. And Mark, in our patterns of care studies, we're seeing a dramatic increase in using that regimen 
by oncologists with a lower heart failure rate. Your group actually studied this and defined it. Where are we right now in terms of this issue of treatment of the HER2-positive patients and the risk of heart failure and whether we can kind of get around it by not using an anthracycline? It's expected that the FDA will actually approve the TCH regimen for adjuvant therapy of HER2-positive early breast cancer, I believe, this week. And so I think you're going to continue to see uh, increased uptake of this regimen. The point of the trial is that it's proof of concept that trastuzumab non-anthracycline regimens may be a consideration. Of course, the criticism of BCRG006 is the trial was not powered for non-inferiority between the anthracycline and non-anthracycline Herceptin-containing arms. So for some practicing clinicians, they might want to wait on the sidelines on this issue, and that's fine. I'm comfortable with that. Clearly, the trial demonstrated a statistically significant reduction in the incidence of clinical congestive heart failure in favor of the non-anthracycline regimen. And in terms of efficacy, TCH compared very favorably with the anthracycline-containing arm. So it really looks like Herceptin kind of trumps everything in the chemo base, which you incorporate with trastuzumab, probably doesn't matter very much. The final topic was the use of partial breast irradiation, a strategy that's utilized by 89% of surgical investigators and 67% of general surgeons. The balloon implantation technique is used by more than three-quarters of the respondents and conformal radiation therapy by more than half. Dr. Whitworth comments. If you look back at the NSABP B06 trial, it's pretty clear there was zero benefit from whole breast radiation therapy in any quadrant other than the primary tumor quadrant. So there's reason to believe the B39 trial will show equivalent benefit even in the higher risk patients. But I really would wait on partial breast radiation therapy outside the B39 trial for patients who are at higher risk, and that would be patients who are node positive, tumors bigger than three centimeters, or age less than 45 to 50. What about this issue of interoperative therapy? Where do you think that's heading? It's very exciting. Mel Silverstein told me today to expect some good news about that. There are some large trials that are completing. If it really turned out that a single intraoperative dose gave equivalent control to post-op radiation therapy, I think people would begin to go to the trouble. If it's going to be just about boost and reducing the boost time, I think there'll be a lot slower adoption of that approach. It certainly requires a lot of work to get up and going with it. How about this issue of age? A not inconsequential number of surgeons don't use age or young age as a contraindication. How strong is it a contraindication, Pat? Well, it's a contraindication in the sense that those patients are at much higher risk for local failure, just like node-positive patients and some of the other patients with larger tumors. The risk for local failure skyrockets below age 40. It's high between 40 and 50, and then it sort of planes off at something we would find acceptable over 50. Mike, final thoughts about PBI and what's going on in the U.K. in terms of PBI? PBI is not widely used in the U.K. I was interested because actually the what Pat was saying about size and node positivity. I did a pretty comprehensive systematic review of the whole literature on local recurrence. And in fact, surprisingly, you know, most studies have showed size not that important and most studies have showed nodes not that important. Is perhaps exactly right that young age is very important. And the big thing, of course, is what we always talk about is the, the margins. These seem to matter. So, you know, I think we've got studies going on not giving radiotherapy at all in some of these older patients with good cancer. So I think we'll probably have three groups eventually. We'll probably have a group of younger women 
who need to get probably whole breast radiotherapy. We'll have a whole group in the middle who need partial breast and probably a group of older women with good tumors who don't even need radiotherapy. So I think it'll be interesting over the next few years. Pat, again, when we sat down and planned this thing, one of the things that you expressed a lot of interest in is the issue of MR and the breast. Well, it really does depend on whether you have a good, dedicated, high-quality breast MR program that has the ability to do biopsies, or to get that, you have to send your patient 200 miles. And so if you've got to send your patient 200 miles, you're going to use it for neoadjuvant therapy, a positive node with nothing you can find in the breast, and probably for BRCA patients. But you're certainly not going to be using it for the other value that I think it does have in newly diagnosed breast cancer patients with density on their mammograms. And that is, I think in the end, it will indeed, in fact, there's some data that will be coming out this summer that suggest it really does help us do a better job of planning and executing the surgery and getting negative margins. And I think that really is a substantial saving since on whole, the largest centers in the country who have done really hard work on this get about 30% positive margins, meaning 30% of patients go back for more surgery. That's very expensive and probably worth reducing as we select those patients. So final topic, Mike, your comment about post-mastectomy radiation therapy, because the other thing that PETO presented in San Antonio was data looking at this issue and the highly problematic question of people who have one to three positive nodes. And in general, up until now, those patients have not sort of routinely been treated, and yet PETO did demonstrate a pretty significant impact when you put all the data together into a meta-analysis. Did that change in any way your thoughts about this, Mike, or and how do you approach these patients? I think this is one of the most difficult areas, and it's a difficult area for surgeons because we've talked about it before. It means if you've got one, three positive nodes, there's the only risk factor that you give them radiation that limits your reconstructive options. My view is that the book's not closed on this yet. We have a big international study, Supremo, in these middle-risk patients to look whether radiotherapy really does benefit. The fact is that these are kind of old studies with bigger tumors where the patients didn't get adequate systemic therapy. And what we know now is that adequate systemic therapy in these patients will significantly reduce their local recurrence rate. So for me, I think I'm not surprised about 30% would give post-operative radiotherapy. I'm not surprised a lot of people wouldn't. So I think it's a difficult area. We need more data. And thankfully, there's a study ongoing.